0: Good morning, church. I got five more minutes of morning, so I'm going to take advantage of it. Good morning, church. Happy Sabbath. Sabbath. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to all of you, especially those of you who are visiting with us this morning. It's a privilege to have you with us. Uh, We are richly blessed in this community. I want to especially thank the uh, worship team for leading us out. And a special thanks to our new saxophonist, Jean-Cyprien. Thank you so much. Wasn't that nice? That was lovely. Uh, If you uh, enjoy participating, uh, love music, uh, you're more than welcome to join us. Um, We believe that worship is not something that you attend, but something that you bring. Worship is an act of bringing something in front of God. Um, And for us, some of us, it means music. For some of us, it means bringing our prayers. For some of us, it means bringing our resources. Uh, For some of us, it might just be lending our support and our encouragement. Whatever your worship is, you're welcome here this morning. We're glad that you're with us. Over the last few weeks here in our church community, we have been living in the shadow cast by the cross and living in the aftermath of the cross. Just a couple weeks ago, we uh, remembered and celebrated Easter here on our campus, and we talked about how um, the cross is a symbol of life and a symbol of renewal and a symbol of hope around the world, but it did not start out that way. In fact... um, It's a rather uncomfortable symbol. I mentioned this during first service, but essentially, by the time you and I see it, we look at it. uh, We are familiar with it. We are desensitized to what it is and what it means. But its original intent is to humiliate someone long enough that they die from it. It's an object of torture. Like our electrical chairs would be today. Or maybe a lethal injection, but worse. See, the electrical chair only lasts for so long. Lethal injection is lethal, so it goes quickly. But the cross was meant to kill you slowly. It was meant to kill you publicly so that people would come by and look at you and ridicule you because you were powerless to get yourself down from there. And we've been thinking and talking about how for us as Christians and in the church, the cross symbolizes hope and life and good things. But as I mentioned, it didn't start out that way. It would take somebody strung up on the cross days to die. It would take them time to finally defeat their their, their muscles and their strength, and eventually they couldn't pull up on their hands and push up on their tied feet, and they would die from asphyxiation. The cross is not sterile. It's supposed to uh, make you think about cruelty, and it's supposed to be awful, and it, and it, and it is. But we have sort of placed it on keychains and on the rearview mirrors of our cars and around our necks. But I want you for a moment to think about what it was like when Jesus was on that cross. I was telling uh, the group this morning that even this cross, which has been marvelously crafted, is its kind of weird to have around, let's be honest. Um, it started out out here during uh, Easter, and then we moved it down. And this morning I found it behind the organ, so I brought it back. It's its uncomfortable, to to be frank. It's hard to put away. I mean... Does anybody want to take this one home, put it in your living room, right next to your TV, big screen, cross? I mean, would you put it there? You probably wouldn't because it's, it's. I mean, we know what it means, but it's a little weird, don't you think? And you have to explain, oh, yeah, that's where you nail people to and you have to demonstrate. It's kind of strange. It's, it's, it's weird, and it makes us rather uncomfortable if you stop to think about what happened on that cross. Like I said, this one was marvelously crafted, but but Jesus' cross had blood stains on it. We are told that essentially this one is not too not too bad, but the original cross had splinters on it. And, and when they hung Jesus, it would tore into his back. Remember, he he had been flogged, that, that's whipped with, as, as Pastor Sam put it, uh pieces of bone and and, and and rocks in it. And so when they hung him on it, little pieces of his Skin and flesh and muscles would still be on it. So this one looks nice. The real one would smell different. Now I want you to think for a moment as we're talking about the aftermath of the event. The Bible tells us that Jesus died on Friday afternoon, probably around 3 o'clock. The people of the day were kind of worried that if sunset came and he was still hanging there and had not died, they would be forced to sort of like watch him during Sabbath and didn't want to break their Sabbath rules. So they asked uh, uh, the soldiers to break his legs so that he would die quickly. But when they went to break his legs, he was already dead. He had died. The Bible says that Jesus, when he hung on a cross, after spending several hours in there, on there, the Bible tells us that he took a breath and he said, it is finished. Do you remember that? Yes, right? It is finished. Jesus' last words. It is finished. He hung his head and he died. And the Bible tells us that at that time there was a darkness that covered the earth as a symbol that God had removed his presence from his own son. It wasn't the physical anguish that killed him. It wasn't the pain and the embarrassment and the shame that killed him. It was the weight of your sin and my sin that weighed so heavily upon him that made God look away. And when God looked away... Jesus died. That night, Friday night, they had taken Jesus' body and buried it. We've been talking about it here in in church community for the last couple of weeks. The people who had known him were living in the aftermath of this cross. And and there was such a varied reaction of, 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 of events and things that happened from those that had been witnesses to Jesus' life on earth. Think about it. The Bible tells us that Judas went crazy. He realized he had turned in an innocent man. The Bible describes that he went to a field and his body burst open, guts spilled out. We're also told that his disciples were in hiding after Jesus died and they buried him. His disciples didn't know what to do, what to think. They were afraid that they might be Next. Those that crucified him were probably rejoicing, grateful that they had finally put an end to this man's stories. The aftermath of the cross finds us looking at people with dashed hopes, some filled with regrets, as Pastor Sam told us a story last week. Leaders and those who had a chance, perhaps, to react differently or read a different part of the story lived and filled with regrets. Some even led to suicide, perhaps. But there was certainly confusion. There was confusion because when Jesus died, his disciples didn't know what to make of it. They had thought that he would not die. They had thought that the cross was going to be an opportunity for him to flex his power. But Jesus dies, and they bury him. And the disciples are distraught and confused. And we're gonna pick up a little bit of that story. If you would please turn to the book of Luke with me. And we are in Luke 24. We studied it this morning during first service, and if you were here then just hang on. Be patient. We are in Luke chapter 24. We've studied and talked about here at church for the last two weeks the reactions of those who came to the tomb the next day on on Sunday, early the first week. We had Mary, we had Simon, we had John. We had others who had come to see and find out what was happening. And in Luke chapter 24, we pick up the story. The Bible tells us... that the women arrived at the tomb first and that they did not find Jesus there. And they went back to tell the disciples. And that some of the disciples ran to the tomb where the body of Jesus had been buried. But when they got there, they found that there was nothing there. And so they were confused. They were confused because not only was he dead and he was buried, but now he just disappeared altogether. Some thought that the, 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 the grave had been robbed. But then they began to wonder... And the Bible tells us, we study this in the book of John, that as Mary was wandering this near the tomb and crying, Jesus appeared to her and spoke her name, and he revealed himself to her. Then she went running to the disciples and says, no, I've seen him. And they weren't quite sure if they should believe her. So there was this confusion set in. A bunch of differing accounts of what was taking place. And the disciples did not know what to make of it. And we pick up the story here in the book of Luke, chapter 24, beginning with verse 13 immediately after the women came and told them, his body's not there. He's gone. And Mary said, no, I've seen him. He's alive. Uh, um, The Bible tells us this story. We'll read it quickly, okay. Read along with me. Luke 24, verse 13. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in a pew in front of you. I strongly encourage you to look it up for yourself. Um, The word of God is there for you. And this is what it says. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called that's about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were walking with each other and talking about everything that happened. And as they walked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself, having been resurrected, walked up uh, alongside them. But they did not recognize him. Maybe he had a hoodie on. I don't know. And as he was walking with them, he said, what are you discussing? Hey, what are you guys talking about? Have you ever had someone, a stranger, try to talk to you? Maybe you're at the line, super, mm-hmm, I thank you very much. Somebody's listening out there. Maybe you're at the supermarket, you know, you and your friends are discussing something, at a restaurant, Taco Bell, whatever. Has anybody walked up, hey, what are you guys talking about? Has anybody done that? If it's happening, how do you respond? You usually go, uh, nothing, right? You're like, Psst. Jesus rolls up on these two people as they're walking along the way and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? They, however, were startled. The Bible says that they stood still, their faces downcast. They didn't even want to look up. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you a visitor to Jerusalem? You must be a stranger. You can't be from around here because if you were from around here, you would know what's happened. Everyone's talking about it unless you're the only person that hasn't heard. Look at this, what he says. Are you the only visitor or do you not know the things that have happened here? And Jesus says, what things? What things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they respond. I'm going to go quickly here, okay? And they said, he was a prophet. And they began to describe a synopsis of everything that has just taken place. The things that you and I have been reading and discussing here for the last three weeks. They put a synopsis here. They said, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, this is verse uh, 19, He was a prophet, powerful in word and in deed, before God and all the people. But the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. He was a prophet, powerful, we loved him, but our rulers handed him over, and they crucified him. And we, notice this, had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. What's more, it's been three days since he died. See right there in their synopsis they they really explain what they thought about Jesus, that he was a prophet, somebody special, that he was powerful man he could he could say things with authority and he could do stuff he was healing people we've talked about that at length this this year miracles, healings uh, uh rescuing people with his acts, but they said we had hoped he was going to redeem israel. they said. Despite all of this, what we thought he was going to do is he was going to politically liberate our nation. The Jews, Israel, descendants of Israel, were tired of being under oppression. They're just like you and me. They hated to pay taxes. Come on, admit it. How many of you guys were excited to, woohoo, Uncle Sam? I went to the post office on the 15th. There was a long line of people trying to put this stuff in. And I didn't see anybody laughing. I didn't see anybody putting stickers on their envelopes. I love you, Uncle Sam. Have fun with my money. No. They were tired of of having to pay taxes to Rome. They were tired of being told what to do, what not to do. They were tired of being under occupation under oppression. And so they had come to believe that Jesus was going to create a revolution, get the people all fired up, and that they were going to overthrow the Roman Empire and establish themselves as an independent nation, able to do and say and live however they pleased. So when they hung him, all those hopes were dashed. And so as Jesus says, tell me these things, they're like, well, that's who we thought he was, but he's dead. He's been dead for like three days. They killed him on Friday. It's like Sunday now. So the Bible describes them as downcast. We're like, we don't know what to do. They continue. In addition... Some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb this morning but couldn't find his body. And they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our other companions went and they said it was just like that. Nothing in the tomb. They say he's alive. But we haven't seen him yet. They're confused. They're like, we thought he was going to do this. He said some cryptic stuff about three days. We don't understand But now they say the tomb is empty and some say he's alive, but we haven't seen him yet. So we don't know what to think. And Jesus responds and he says, how foolish you are and how slow of heart. Verse 25, you fools, slow of heart you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets and the law and the commandments and the scriptures, he began to unlock all the links about himself. Jesus began to break it down for them, what the Bible said about himself. And the Bible tells us that they were amazed. This is what happens. And as they approached, verse 28, the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as he was As if he were going further. Jesus was like, yeah, I'll see you guys later. But they said, no, stay with me. Stay with us. Because it's nearly the evening of the day. The day is almost over. So they convinced him to stay with them. And so when they were at the table having dinner, verse 30, he took bread and broke it and gave thanks. And when he did that, they recognized him. The Bible says that their eyes were open and suddenly they're like, "Uh uh-oh, this is Jesus. Jesus. When he took the bread, it was a familiar scene. He had done it in the upper room. And so when he broke the bread and blessed it and began to share it, they were like, oh, And Jesus disappeared from the sight. And they asked each other, they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us? They're like, it had to be him. Because when he talked to us, it was like something was going on inside. So they got excited and they got up and they ran to Jerusalem. I know I'm going kind of fast, so hang in there. They, they, they ran to Jerusalem and they found the 11. How many? 11. Because? Judas is gone. Okay. So there used to be 12 minus 1 is 11. That's what the Bible says. 11. Judas is gone. They found the 11 and all the others humbled. And they said, it's true. It's true. The Lord has risen. We saw him. He broke bread with us. And now the disciples are concerned. They've been in hiding. The 11 have been in hiding. Except for the time that Simon and and John ran to the tomb, they come back and they're in hiding. They're freaking out. Jesus died. They didn't know what to do with that. Now they, there's no body. And some people say he's back alive. There's crazy emotions going on there. We, we talked at length about how Peter, well, he was, he didn't want to hear that Jesus died because he had, remember, betrayed Jesus on, on the way to the cross. But what's worse than betraying someone and having them die is having them come back to life. <laughs> what if you run into them? Right? So Peter's a mess. And the, the disciples are concerned; they're not sure what to think. Bible says, verse thirty six. While they're still talking about this, Jesus shows up. While they were still talking, Jesus shows up and he stood among them, and he said, "Peace be with you." See, he usually leads with that, "Peace be with you," because when Jesus shows up, people get scared. When Jesus shows up, people get scared. So he says, Peace be with you. And the Bible says, verse 37, they were startled and frightened, thinking that they had seen a ghost. And Jesus says, Don't be scared. Don't doubt. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It is I. Touch and see. Ghost does not have flesh or bones, as you see that I have. Jesus tried to calm their fears and said, No, it's really me. And just to make sure that they felt at ease, Jesus said, You guys got anything to eat? I'm starving. I love Jesus. He's great. He's like, you guys got anything to eat? Uh, And then they scrambled. The Bible says they found it. It's right here. I'm not making this up. Read for yourself. The Bible says they found a broiled fish and and then they gave it to him. They're like, "Uh, here. That's what I would do. Right? If, if, If like Jesus showed up in my kitchen and he'd be like, I'm starving. I would, whatever. And I'd be like, here you go. They thought they saw a ghost because the last time they saw him, he was saying, it is finished. He was bleeding. Nails on his hands and on his feet. And it had been days. And Jesus says, I'm hungry. And they give him a piece of fish. And as he eats, verse 44, he says this, this is what I told you. He says, I'm going to remind you of what I tried to tell you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then again, he began to open their eyes and their minds and make the links about how the entire Old Testament led up to the presence of Jesus and to the acts of Jesus. And the Bible says here that as he opened their minds, he told them this, the Christ will suffer, that means die, but he will rise from the dead on the third day. He says that is what i told you was going to happen that is what has happened and verse 47 please look with me please and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning right here in jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things this morning in our in our uh, uh, first service we discussed how essentially this is what jesus is doing so he has come from heaven on behalf of god himself To reclaim a kingdom. He has come because this world, which was originally God's kingdom, this was God's footstool. He made it. He created it. But we decided to take it away from God and hand it over to the prince of darkness. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. And In the the Garden of Eden, the the prince of darkness said to us, and and he tricked us with this he says we don't have to be under God's lordship you don't have to be under his rule do you know that you can be like God and Adam and Eve fell for it and you and I do too we fell for this idea that essentially our life will be better if we go around God and away from God but that couldn't be further from the truth And so what happened ever since then is that this world has been under the dominion of darkness and evil and sin and death. It's the the kind of thing that you experience when you experience loss and pain and sickness and, and, and disease and broken hearts. That all comes from there. And so Jesus has come from God to reclaim this kingdom. The kingdom of God. See, what Satan hoped to do on that cross is he hoped to kill the son of God. Because he thought that if he killed the Son of God, then he could replace him. Be like God. Just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees of the day, they wanted to kill Jesus to silence him and his kingdom. They wanted to crush him, destroy him, and anyone who would believe in him. And when he died, they thought they had accomplished it. Satan himself thought he had won. See, the the, the crucifixion is is a moment of victory for Satan. He thinks I killed him. I used these people to destroy God's son. And now the universe will see that I was right all along. God is a tyrant. He cannot be trusted. He doesn't keep his word. He's a liar, and he's just holding you back. But Jesus dies to fulfill God's sense of justice and to pay the price for the sins that you and I commit. He dies for that. But Jesus resurrects to fulfill God's grace, to prove to us in the universe that God's mercy trumps his justice, that God's grace is stronger than the devil's hate. That God's love has more power than even death. And Jesus rises. And when he rises, he proclaims, this is now the kingdom of God. So when he shows up with the disciples there on that that day, he's saying the son of God must die, suffer, but resurrect. And when he resurrects, now repentance and forgiveness will be preached to all the world. Here's the thing. The kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, is in these two things, repentance and forgiveness. I'm going to break that down for you in a minute, but I just want to lay it out for you. They thought the kingdom of God was going to be a political thing. You know that even some of you think the kingdom of God is a, is, is like a, a, a earthly thing? You think that if you believe in Jesus Christ, he's going to change your situation, going to make things better for you, remove that. Nasty boss you're working for. You know, if I pray to Jesus hard enough, he'll get fired and I'll be the new boss. We think that Jesus is here to sort of like make things better for us. Or that somehow our community, our little church or our denomination will rise to fame and rise to power and be able to determine things. But that's not all. That's not at all what Jesus is doing here. In fact, he says the Christ must suffer and die. But since he's resurrected, here's what's going to happen next. Repentance and forgiveness. That's the kingdom of God. It's got nothing to do with political power. It's got nothing to do with your material possessions, wealth, or lack thereof. It has everything to do with repentance and forgiveness. Jesus comes to reclaim the kingdom of God. The Bible tells us in the book of, of, of Matthew that Jesus then to his disciples and he says, so here's the deal. All authority has been given to me. I just came back from the dead. Can any one of you say that? Of course not. So all authority resides with me and here's what I'm going to tell you. Therefore, you remember this? Chapter 28. It's in your bulletins. Right there, the bulletin. Therefore, go. Oh, don't like that word. Go. Therefore, Go. Go. Make disciples, baptize, teach to all nations. Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Remember that? thats We call it the Great Christian Commission. You've heard it if you've been around church long enough. There, therefore, go. Go into the, all the world, into all the nations. So Jesus says, I'm setting up a new kingdom. I'm reclaiming the kingdom for God. This is the kingdom, repentance and forgiveness. But the minute he says that, he hands over the keys of the kingdom to the disciples. Therefore, go. And that's what's fascinating about living in the aftermath of the cross. Because the cross is a symbol of God's reclamation of his kingdom on earth. But it is not an excuse for you and I to do nothing. Because Jesus says, "Now is the kingdom," but in the kingdom, you are the witnesses. So He turns to the disciples there in Luke twenty-four, and He says, "This this 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 gospel will be preached, repentance and forgiveness to all the world. But you are my witnesses to these things. You are my witnesses to these things." Tradition tells us that the book of Luke uh, continues in the book of Acts. written by the same author. So what I want you to do is just flip, skip the book of John, as powerful as it is, and go directly to the book of Acts chapter 1 because we'll find the same summary there. Because I want to break down the keys of the kingdom for you today. And uh, good luck to you. Here we go. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Just go ahead and flip it over. This is what it says. In my former book... I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles he had chosen. And after his suffering, that is code word for his death. He showed himself to these men. That's what we were just talking about. And after giving many convincing proofs that he was alive, i.e. touch my hands, touch my feet, give me a piece of fish. Jesus says then that he appeared to them over 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of. Are you reading with me? Okay, we got three readers. Let me read it again. You guys follow along with me. It's verse 3. After his suffering, Acts chapter 1, he showed himself to these men, gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive, appeared over 40 days, and spoke about the kingdom of God. Thank you. All right, good. You can read. Fantastic. Jesus is making sure here that you and understand, you and I understand that what he just did is he established, reestablished the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. But watch this. We're gonna read through and then break it down on one occasion verse 4 while he was eating with them he gave them this command do not leave jerusalem wait for the gift of the spirit which uh, your father which you have heard me speak about for john baptized with water but in a few days you'll be baptized with the holy spirit so when they met together they asked him look at this verse 6 lord are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to israel it's fascinating jesus was like ah that's what i would do right 40 days, Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God. And they're like, oh, that's so awesome. And by the way, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still sort of stuck in this earthly mode. Like, when are my situations going to change? And you know why I point that out? Because, because today, my friends, we've got to get past that. You and I have got to get past that. A lot of us have been coming to church, being part of living in the aftermath of the cross. And the only thing we can think about is, what's in it for me? When is my situation going to change? I believe in you, God, and you say you died on a cross. Yeah, I got that, all that. Hooray, kingdom of God. But what about me? Are you at this time going to fix my situation? Uh, When do I get my reward? When will I finally be in a place of, like, where I can say what happens? When do I get authority? When will the kingdom be mine? But Jesus came to restore the kingdom of who? God. God. So the question I have for you today is what kingdom do you belong to? Who's the king of your kingdom? Who rules your kingdom? Is it God? Is it Uncle Sam? Is it you? Jesus says, Kingdom of God. I've come to proclaim, repent, be baptized. For the kingdom of God is near, and now the kingdom of God is here. And he begins to talk to them. They're still in this confusion. Jesus says, I'm leaving. I have come to establish the kingdom of God, but I'm leaving the keys to the kingdom in your hands. You need to understand what the kingdom of God is. And so today you and I are going to break down the keys of the kingdom. The death of Jesus Christ satisfies God's justice. The the debt has been paid. That's no longer an issue. The resurrection of Jesus Christ establishes his authority as king. There can only be one. That's no longer an issue. The, the real question here is whether or not you're going to acknowledge his kingship or you're going to pretend that it didn't happen, that he does not have authority, that he does not have rule over your life. They said, we had hoped you would reclaim Israel, but Jesus came to establish and reclaim the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is in repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness. Christ died. Sin has been paid. Christ rose. You can live in freedom now. Freedom. Jesus is saying repentance and forgiveness will be preached to all the nations. That means the freedom from sin is now available to all the nations. And then Jesus does this. He turns to them and he says... Look at this, verse 7. He says, it is not for you to know the times or dates. The Father said his own authority. But you will receive power. The Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. So Jesus says, this is the kingdom of God. Repentance and forgiveness. And you will be my witnesses. And now I'm going. And he goes. It's pretty fantastic. He comes and establishes the kingdom in that act, but he does not then enforce his kingship. I don't know if you noticed that. He never appears at the temple. He never goes to where the Pharisees he doesn't go to the to the mount because I was telling the group somewhere that's what I would go. I would go to Calvary and I'd be like, right? that's what I would do." I would say, come take me out. You can't keep me down. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he establishes it, but then he leaves it. It's really bizarre. But it's because the kingdom of God is not an earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. And here are then the keys. He turns to his disciples and he says, you will be my witnesses. It's almost as if he says, I'm going to leave now, but I'm going to deputize you. You know what that means? Have you ever been deputized? When you get deputized you 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 get certain authorities and powers to do certain things on behalf of someone else. It's like being knighted. Have you ever been knighted? Any knights in here? Okay, no one's been knighted, but you know what that is, right? You, you kneel before the queen, the queen I dub thee sir, whatever. And suddenly you have rights and privileges, but you also have responsibilities to defend the queen's honor or whatever. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, "I deputize you. I knight you. I I ordain you. I confer these degrees on you. I charge you with this. You will be my witnesses. So go. And he hands over the keys of the kingdom. And here then are the keys of the kingdom. Let's break them down. Beginning with verse 4. While he's eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. For the gift my father promised you. The key of the kingdom of God, number one, wait on God. Turn to your neighbor and say, look at him or her face and say, wait on God. Go ahead. You want to know why that's the first key? Because the one the one characteristic that we're all born with is impatience. Right? It's like a universal human trait. We want what we want and we want it now. It's an American right. You know, we we are entitled to wanting it now. And so sometimes we have come and we want to be part of the kingdom of God, but we want God to then jump for us. We want God to do this. We want God to do that. And we get impatient when when, when we say, well, what is this going to mean? What changes are you bringing? But key number one, if you and I are now deputized in the kingdom, which by the way, let me repeat, you are. If you are a Christ follower, Jesus says go to you. You are my witnesses. If you would live in the aftermath of the cross as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are therefore deputized as a Christian. And your command is to defend, protect, and expand the kingdom. It's as simple as that. Go. Repentance and forgiveness. That's the kingdom. But what are the keys? Number one, wait upon God. You've got to wait. Nobody likes that. Right? I hate waiting. How much longer are we there yet but jesus says wait don't go just yet don't leave jerusalem he says don't leave yet but wait for the gift you see waiting on god is for our benefit it is for our benefit Waiting in God is the experience of learning to depend on God, to wait for his leading. Oftentimes, we want to rush out there and do whatever. We just want to go and get it done, and we mess it up. Waiting is what God uses to mold our character because it's in the waiting that we ask the more significant questions. Like, if I do this, what will the consequences be? If I say this, how will I make people feel, right? That's why they say, think before you speak, right? But nobody likes that. Key number one, wait upon God. He says, wait upon God. Wait, wait, wait for the gift that my Father has promised. God has promised something to you and you've got to wait for it. Number two, you've got to trust in Jesus. You've got to trust that God will actually come tr- through on that promise. So turn to your neighbor, key number two, and say, trust in God. Trust in God. Now I'm going to describe to you what trust really is. Trust, let me, listen carefully so, so we can get through this. Trust is the belief in something in spite of the circumstances. The belief in something in spite of the circumstances. I'll give you an example. Do you believe that your husband or your wife loves you even though they're not being very nice right now? That's trusting that they love you despite the fact they're having difficulty with it at the moment. Right? We exercise trust when we choose to give someone the benefit of the doubt. Because circumstances would point otherwise. And so trust begins to develop in us A momentum towards the positive. A momentum towards good things because we begin to believe the best possible outcomes even in the face of uncertainty. And why that is necessary here as a key to the kingdom is because when you're going to go preach and teach and live and model repentance and forgiveness, I guarantee you the circumstances are not going to look good. The situations that you're going to go into, those places that you're going to try to reclaim the kingdom of God are not going to be very welcoming to I'm sorry's and I forgive you's. But you've got to trust that God is leading you that direction. And you know how we learn to trust? It's in the waiting. That's how. It's in the waiting that God will keep his word. So if God told you he was going to bless you, you just got to wait until he does. That's how you develop trust. Wait upon God. Trust in God. That's what he says here. Wait for the gift my father has promised. You got to trust in God. And he says, and then <clears throat> you've heard me speak about this. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Look down a little further. They says, Jesus says, when you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. The key number three is you cannot do anything, even if I knight you today, give you a name, if I called you Christian. There's nothing that you can do on behalf of the kingdom unless you've got power from some place, and the power of the kingdom is in the Holy Spirit. It's in the Holy Spirit. So turn to your neighbor and tell him you've got power in the Holy Spirit. You've got power in the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you, friends, this is a most important phrase that you need to remember. Because when you begin to take the kingdom, listen, if you begin to take the kingdom of forgiveness and repentance in places, you're going to run up against things that seem insurmountable. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Think about the person you've held a feud with for years and years. It might be your mom. And God is saying, my kingdom needs to be expressed even to your mom's house. And you got to go over there and you got to say, mom. I'm sorry, or you've got to say, Mom, I forgive you, and all you get there is a blank wall, right? But the Holy Spirit can tear that down. Wait on God, trust in Him, and He will give you the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that gives power for us to do things that are not human possible for us to do that's why the kingdom of god is not of this earth it is of god it is a spiritual thing and if you're going to step into it and be commissioned by you've got to believe in these keys waiting upon god trust in god and you will get power in the holy spirit number four when you get power in the holy spirit you will be my witnesses jesus says when you get power then you've got to go key number four is obedience obedience so turn to your neighbor and say go where god tells you yeah go where god tells you listen my friends listen you can't be a good knight you cannot be a good knight of the kingdom if if the kingdom says go defend our and then you're like no nah, <laughs> i'm good <laughs> You, 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 there's no point in having a helmet and a sword and all this stuff if you're just going to sit around in your living room and watch TV. You've got to go. Key number four, if we're going to protect, defend, and expand the kingdom is we have got to obey. When Jesus says you will means you go. When Jesus says, therefore I send you, go. You will be my witnesses. We have to obey. See, but we don't obey simply. Listen carefully. We don't obey simply because God tells us to. Don't you hate it? When your parents do that, do this. Why? Because I told you so. You hate that. No, it is not that. We don't obey because God tells us to. We obey because we recognize that he paid the ultimate price for us. And we didn't deserve any of that. We obey because grace compels us to move in God's direction. Because he loved us so much. What can I do except but respond to his grace? And if he says go, I'll go because my life is not my own. Go where God tells you to. Listen, if God told you today, listen, I want you to go home and I want you to apologize to your wife, you better do that. Only good things can come from what? Not going where God sends you, you know what happens then, right? Five little letters, J-O-N-A-H. You don't want to end up in the belly of a fish, do you? Oh, you guys don't know that story? Oh, okay, sorry. <clears throat> go where God tells you. There's blessings at the end of that rainbow. Key number five, Jesus says, you will receive power and, and, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. Are, we are supposed to go, but what are we supposed to do? Just go, ah, I'm a Christian. No, we're supposed to be witnesses. That's the key. You've got to be a witness. I'm going to tell you the keys. You ready? This is how you get to witness the kingdom of God. It's very simple. First turn to your neighbor and repeat after me. Or, or better yet, make sure you turn to the person you came to church with today. All right, because I know this is gonna apply. Go ahead, look at him. You look at him and say, I'm sorry. Right? Right. Now if you really want to grow the kingdom, Then you finish that line for the things that you have done to disrespect someone, to devalue them, to criticize them. You go ahead. You finish that line. That is how we witness to the kingdom. And now the three most powerful words in the English language. Turn to your neighbor, the same person we just apologized, and say, are you ready? Three most powerful words. I forgive you. Can you feel that? You feel that? People think I love you are the most powerful words in English language. It's not true. I love you are the most explosive words. Man, they could do crazy stuff. But I forgive you. I forgive you. Those three words, they can move mountains. Think about it. I forgive you is what brings life from death. That is how you and I witness This is how we expand the kingdom. People think that our methods are discipling and teaching and baptizing. Yes, that's all true. But you don't witness the kingdom by saying, here, I'm here to baptize you. No, no, no. You witness to the kingdom by those two simple acts. First, apologize. If you have done wrong, apologize. That's what repentance means. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I said these words to you. That was unkind of me. Take, Take the responsibility for what you've done to hurt other people. I'm sorry. And when somebody apologizes to you, and even if they don't, I forgive you releases them from bondage i forgive you the three most powerful words just practice them at home try it go home and witness the kingdom of god in your house when your son your daughter does something that makes you mad just stop take a breath remember the cross remember that you've been knighted by jesus himself and then turn and say i forgive you and when you say those three words the kingdom of god will arrive upon your house and god will be there and his presence will be felt by you and your family can you imagine that that's what it means when Jesus says, wait, wait, wait. When the opportunity comes, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Listen, my friends, this is going to happen to you probably today, probably tonight. You're going to be in a situation where you're going to be in some kind of conflict. And the Holy Spirit is going to show up in your ear and he's going to say, this is the moment. This is the moment that you proclaim the kingdom of God. Say, I forgive you. And you'll be standing there with armor in hand, wondering what to do. And you'll have to decide. Will I proclaim the kingdom of God? Or will I would proclaim my kingdom? No. I don't forgive you. I'm sorry and I forgive you. Jesus says that's how you'll be my witnesses in Judea, in Jerusalem, and in the ends of the earth. Key number six is very simple. Jesus said it. Go into all the earth, teach them, baptize them, do all those things. And remember... That I am with you. That I am with you to the very end of the age. Key number six is the presence of God. Turn to your neighbor and say, God is with you. God is with you. Listen, this is how you and I can do these amazing things. To say I'm sorry and and to say I forgive you, that's not even human. That comes from God. But God says, I will be with you. Jesus says, I'll be with you. Wherever you go, no matter what happens, I will be with you. That's how and why you and I can step. It isn't because I've got its power. It's because I've got knowledge, because I've been trained. It's because the presence of God is with me. That's his promise. God is with you. So you can go. My friends, this this, this month here in our community, we're going to be talking and thinking about growing and expanding the kingdom of God. But you have to know this. God has provided everything. But he's not out there knocking on doors. He's not out there serving hot meals. He's not out there helping people. No, he left that to us the keys of the kingdom are in our hands it is our responsibility to defend protect and expand the kingdom and these are the keys wait upon god trust in god you will have power in the holy spirit go where god tells you and when you get there say i'm sorry And I forgive you and God will be with you because God is with us.